As we open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, long ago at many times and in many ways, you spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days you have spoken to us by your Son, whom you appointed the heir of all things and through whom also you created the world. So we pray that you would speak through him now by his Spirit and that we would see him in your word. Help us, we pray, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to the book of Micah. Micah chapter 6. Micah chapter 6. If you're using the Pew Bible, you'll find that most of our Pew Bibles on page 990. The book of Micah is a small book towards the end of the Old Testament, one of the prophetic books between the books of Jonah and Nahum. So Micah chapter 6. And we're going to read all of chapter 6 into the first, first, verse, first seven verses of chapter 7. So Micah chapter 6, beginning at verse 1 and reading through 7, verse 7. Let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear you mountains the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring fountains of the earth. Enduring foundations of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and full weights? Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore I strike you with a grievous blow making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat but not be satisfied, and there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away but not preserve, and what you preserve I will give to the sword. You shall sow but not reap. You shall tread olives but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes but not drink wine, for you have kept the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab, and you have walked in their counsels, that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing, so you shall bear the scorn of my people. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires, The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. 
They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul, thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright of them a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman of your punishment has come, now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats a father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Um, We're continuing to consider in our evening service through uh, the catechism, through the the general order of theology to hit on the major topics that we need to understand. And we've been spending time thinking about uh, the guilt section of the catechism, that first section of the catechism. And we spend time thinking about our guilt because we need to understand something important if we want to really live and die in the joy of the comfort of knowing that we belong to Jesus Christ. And one of the things that we point out in the second question of the catechism is there are three fundamental truths that I need to know in order that I might live and die in the joy and the comfort of knowing that I belong to Jesus. And the first thing I have to understand is how great my sin and misery are. Uh, And that's why we spent the time the last few weeks on a not-so-happy topic, on sin and misery. Um, We are going to turn our attention tonight to deliverance, uh, despite that rather bleak landscape we see painted uh, in this section of Micah. But we do need to understand how great our sin and misery are before we turn to consider how we are delivered from our sin and misery. That's the second essential truth that we need to understand, how I'm delivered from all my sin and misery. And that's really where our study is turning, and Lord willing, where we will spend the next several weeks thinking about that. Uh, The good news is the guilt section is three Lord's Days long, from Lord's Days 2 through 4. The grace section of the catechism, or the salvation section of the catechism, is much longer, Lord's Days 5 through 31. Uh, So we spend much more time thinking about grace, thinking about salvation, thinking about deliverance, but it's important for us to understand how deliverance can be attained, uh, to understand how we can be saved from our guilt and misery. Um, And the reason this begins the deliverance section is because we begin to see the hope of deliverance pictured for us, the fact that there is a chance for us to escape the judgment that should come against us on account of our sins, a way to escape punishment and to return to the favor of our God. Uh, That's the hope that is held out for us uh, as we begin, but it's important that we understand how that is going to take place. And one of the first things that we learn is for us to escape punishment, for us to return to the favor of God, it's going to require that the demands of God's justice be satisfied. Uh, Deliverance can only be found if the demands of God's justice are met, are satisfied. And that's what we want to think about in light of what Micah had to say. Um, That's the only way we can come back to God, is if the demands of his justice are satisfied. 
Um, so in that light, we're going to look at Micah 6 and, and 7 and think about uh, how we need to see that satisfaction of God's justice playing out. So we want to do that in three ways. To think about the situation examined. To understand what the, the demands of God's law are and how they need to be satisfied. Then we're going to think about satisfaction sought. Where can we look for satisfaction uh, for sin? And then finally to think about the salvation required. Uh, how we can find deliverance. So that's how we want to think about our situation examined, the satisfaction that's sought, and the salvation that's required. Um, Micah helps us to understand the situation, the situation that we describe in question 12 of the Catechism. According to God's righteous judgment, we deserve punishment both now and in eternity. How then can we escape this punishment and return to God's favor? God requires that his justice be satisfied. Therefore, the claims of this justice must be paid in full. Uh, the point of, of the last Lord's Day was to make the case, and I wasn't here, but I was able to watch it and see that the case was made, uh, that uh, God cannot simply overlook uh, the demands of his justice. Uh, they must be met. So we're understanding that must be met. Um, God requires that his justice be satisfied. Therefore, the claims of this justice must be paid in full. So any hope of deliverance has to include the satisfaction of God's justice, uh, which raises a number of questions for us. What do we mean by satisfaction? Uh, what do we mean when we use that term? How are we to understand that? Well, we mean that the demands that God's law requires, the demands of his justice have to be satisfied, uh, have to be met, uh, which, of course, then raises another question. What are the demands of God's justice that need to be met? Um, how should we think about those things? Well, when God gave the law in the first place, he was clear about what the violation of the law would bring about. Uh, he warned Adam and Eve in the garden, didn't he? The day you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. Uh, that's what the crime would demand as a punishment. That's what the violation of God's law would demand as a punishment. And that thread continues to run through the scriptures, that the, that the wages of sin is death. What's required as a result of sin is that punishment. We could think of several verses in Romans 2, 6, 8, 9, and 11. He will render to each one according to his works for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, for God shows no partiality. Um, or perhaps Ezekiel puts it most frankly and simply in Ezekiel 18.20 when he says, the soul who sins shall die. Um, that is what is the demand of God's justice. Uh, that's the demand that has to be made. God's law requires violation to be paid in wrath and fury. That his justice fall on the sinner that has offended his eternal majesty. Uh, so the question should arise in our minds, who can meet the demands of that justice? Uh, who can meet that so that we can escape from it? Um, and, and the catechism rightly points out there are really only two possibilities. Either we have to try to meet that justice, or someone else will have to meet the justice for us, right? The claims of his justice must be paid in full, either by ourselves or by another. 
And that's what Micah really helps us to do, brings into relief the impossibility of other suitable substitutes for us. The, the impossibility that we could somehow pay the debt we owe ourselves. Or that anyone else who we can think of in this world could satisfy the debt that's owed to God. And Micah helps to, to bring these things in, in stark relief in, in Micah 6 by bringing to mind what God has done. Uh, God kind of calls his people to his tribunal in, in Micah chapter 6. And in the first five verses of that chapter, he sort of calls a, a hearing. And he calls the mountains and the eternal foundations of the world to bear witness. Uh, notice that in Micah chapter 6, he says, hear, hear what the Lord says, Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord. The Lord has an indictment against his people. Um, Why does the Lord call the mountains as a witness in this picture? It's because from the beginning of the world, the mountains have been standing witness to what God has done for his people. Um, it's It's a way of sort of picturing the mountains as being living witnesses of history. Um, if we if we could talk to the mountains that are all around us and ask what they've seen in the last 200 years in Southern California, it would be interesting to be able to talk to mountains and hear them bear witness. We can't do that, boys and girls. I'm sorry to report, but it would be it would be fun to do that to help hear them say, "I can tell you what it was like when you know bears were around here and all kinds of things were going on." They've borne witness to a lot of history, and that's what God does. He says. Right, the mountains, you've been here since the beginning of the world. Let you, you be the witness when I say what I'm going to say. And you see if what I say is true. You bear witness to what I'm going to announce against my people. And then God asks a very important question in verse 3 of chapter 6. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Um, it's a way of saying, what have I done to exasperate you? Um, as much as we try to be good neighbors and Christians, there are people that we see coming and we think, oh boy, I'm going to really need the, the grace to endure. Um, it's tiring. They, they weary us. And the Lord says, you know, what have I ever done to you that when you see me coming, you think, oh brother, the Lord, what does he want now? Lord, say, you know, what have I ever done that would earn that kind of response from you? When you were in hard service in Egypt and you called out to me for relief, did I not redeem you? Did I not come and set you free from Pharaoh? I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. I brought you out of that iron furnace. Is that what wearied you? And when you're in the wilderness and needed leaders, I provided you Moses and Aaron and Miriam to guide you in that time through the wilderness. Did that weary you? Were they poor leaders that didn't lead you on the way that you ought to go? Or maybe I wearied you when Balak, the king of Moab, sent to curse you and tried to hire Balaam to curse you so that you would be able to be defeated by his army. And I turned Balaam around so that he didn't curse you, but blessed you three times. 
we maybe don't remember the story of Balak and Balaam as well. Maybe the most we remember that story is that Balaam's donkey talked to him. Um, it's a memorable scene. But the whole of the scene was Balak had hired him to curse the people. And God came to Balaam and said, you better only say of my people what I tell you to say. And he gave him words of blessing instead of words of cursing. God said, did I, did I weary you when I turned your enemies, when I protected you from your enemies and spoke a word of blessing rather than a word of cursing? Did I weary you somewhere from between Shittim and Gilgal? I'm sure you all know what those references are, but in case you need to be reminded, uh, we, we talked about those in when we thought about the book of Joshua. Shittim was where they met on the far side of the Jordan River. That's where God had brought them to the brink of the promised land. And you remember that he carried them over the Jordan on dry ground and into the inheritance they promised. Then he brought them to Gilgal and they were circumcised and the reproach was rolled off of them. And that became their headquarters in the promised land. It's a way of saying all of those righteous acts that I did for you, bringing you out of the wilderness to the promised land through the impassable Jordan River into the land of promise. Is that where I wearied you? So where was it exactly? in my redemption, in my leadership, in my protection, in my fulfilling my covenant promises, bring you in. Exactly where did I weary you? See, that's what brings our evil into stark relief. I thought our passage this evening really dovetails with what we heard this morning because we heard about the wickedness of Israel. But the wickedness of Israel is made even worse when we think of it in light of the goodness of our God. The fall is made all that more wicked when we think of the goodness of God in the creation and the provision that he made for his people. And just, just like that, the sins of Micah's day, it's in relief of God who's never been anything but good. Good in the creation. And when we fell, good in calling a people and good to that people. And what have we returned to him for all of that goodness? Continued sin. Continued rebellion. And it's a question that should pierce our souls. How have I wearied you? What have I done to you that would justify such a return? It puts sin in stark relief when we think about that. To think that we have acted wickedly towards a God who's never been anything but good to us. It helps us to see our situation that Micah asks in chapter 6, verse 6. With what shall I meet the Lord? With what shall I meet the Lord when he comes? Um, you know, we, we know these verses. These verses are probably very familiar to many of us who know the Bible well, Micah 6, 6 through 8. Um, what shall I bring before the Lord? But we have to think of it in light of what the Lord has just said. It should fill us with this sense of when the Lord comes and when I have to come for him, when I have to meet him, with what will this God who has been so good and for his goodness has had such a return from his people, how will I meet him when he comes? You see how that question stands in the light of what's been said before this. How will I meet him when he comes? God can recite all of the goodness and grace he showered on me. What will I have? What will I say? What will I offer 
See, when you think about it this way, it's very similar to the question we ask in the catechism, question 13. Can we make this payment ourselves? When God comes with his demands, do we have something that we can offer him? It's right that we say certainly not. Actually, we increase our debt every day. I don't have the power in myself to pay the penalty for sin, not one that would allow me to escape punishment and return to the favor of God. My past sins would testify against me no matter what I promise to do now and in the future. I could promise now to stop sinning and you know, try to amend my life and, and try to go from here, but I still would have all the problems of the sins I've committed. Right? It'd kind of be like someone who had accrued huge credit card debts and then said, you know, I'm going to cut up those cards and I'm not going to use them anymore. Well, that's fine going forward, but it doesn't help with the debt that's piled up. That still is outstanding. Um, And so, could we just double up on the service we already owe to God? All the things that Micah tries to think of in chapters 6 through 8 are things he already owes to God. He already owes him calves. And he already owes him rams. And he already owes him oil for the offerings. All these offerings are already owed by the worshiper. And he's sort of saying, can I just try making double payments and get myself out of this problem? Could I just do more of it and make it satisfying to the Lord? Um, And of course, the way he asked the question is to say, no, I can't just double up on the things I already owe to God and expect to earn more of his favor from that. And that's all, right, just a mental experiment anyway, because even if I really tried hard, I couldn't stop sinning. Um, I would still be a sinner And every one of my sins would do what? Increase my debt. Do what Paul says in Romans 2 verse 5. You're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. We have nothing to present. Nothing in ourselves to present when the Lord meets us that would help us find an escape. So if we can't do it ourselves, could we find someone who could substitute for us? Um, We did say, after all, right, you can either pay this yourself or someone else. So where could we look for a substitute? Who could substitute for us? Could any other creature do it for us? Um, Well, question 14 is right. Can another creature, any at all, pay this debt for us? Let's ask Micah. Micah, is there another person in the world that could satisfy for my sins for me? Is there another righteous person that could pay the debt that's owed for sinners, pay the debt that human beings owe? Well, what does Michael see when he looks around the world? Look what he says in chapter 7, specifically verse 2. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. And then he goes through and says, there's nobody that you can rely on. The leaders take bribes. The rich men are violent. Families are against families. Uh, You can't even trust the girl in your arms. Daughters can't trust their mothers. Mothers can't trust their daughters. Daughter-in-laws can't trust their mother-in-laws. Mother-in-laws can't trust their daughter-in-laws. Maybe that's not as hard for us to believe. Um, I'm not married. I don't have a in-laws that I'm offending by that comment. Um, But 
you know, we could go through that list of things and saying, you know, that's terrible. You can't trust your friends. You can't say anything around anyone because you you're, should put no confidence in your neighbors. You should put no trust in your friends. There, there's no one to rely on in all the world. Right? He even goes so far as to say, could I give my firstborn for my sins? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. And the way he says that is, of course, to say no. There's no other person who could stand substitute, no one who's righteous, no one who'd be sufficient. There's no other person, there's no other creature. That's sort of the point of saying, even if I doubled up on all these offerings and offered calves who are a year old, in other words, calves that I've taken the time to raise and spent the expense of them for the whole year, if I had them, these valuable sacrifices, they still wouldn't be enough. I could offer thousands of rams. I could pour out tens of thousands of rivers of oil. But would that be enough? Would that be enough? Could any of those make the payment satisfy the demands of the law? And as he looks around, there's no other creatures who can satisfy. There's no other creatures who are fit to do that. They're all insufficient. Right? All those other creatures like animals are insufficient in likeness. They're not, they're not human. They're not image bearers of God. They don't have that dignity. And God's not going to punish animals for the sins of human beings. They can't make atonement for us. Holiness. They're not creature. Can bear the weight of God's eternal wrath against sin and deliver others from it. Right? Think how bad God's temporal judgment, his judgment in time, is against sin. Think of that terrible description we read in chapter 6, verses 13 through 16. He's going to strike them with a grievous blow, make them desolate. They'll eat and not be satisfied. You'll put away but not preserve. The things you try to store up, you won't be able to preserve. And anything you manage to preserve, someone will come and take it away from you with the sword. Right? You'll have no harvest. You'll sow, but you won't reap. You'll tread olives, but have no olive oil. Tread wa- grapes, but have no wine to drink. Um, because you've chosen the statutes of Omri, one of the worst of the kings. Um, it's reinforced with the works of the house of Ahab. You've walked in their councils, that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing, so that you shall bear the scorn of my people. That's God's ju- judgment in time and history. Um, that was almost too much of a judgment to be endured. Who can endure his judgment, his wrath, and his fury in eternity and deliver others from it? You see, the point of Micah is to look around and say, who can deliver? With what shall I meet the Lord when he comes? How can we meet the Lord and survive the encounter? And if there's nowhere else that we can look in this world, then we're forced to look to our God. If there are no other substitutes that can be found anywhere else in this world for satisfaction, then where does God want us to look? God wants us to look to Him. God wants us to not try to, try to do this ourselves or try to think we can find some other substitute, but so that we might look to him. And that's where we find salvation required. 
as Micah looks around, it's almost as if the situation is hopeless, right? Woe is me. Um, God is just. God is coming. And I don't know how I'm supposed to meet him. There's nothing I can give him. There's no one else who can stand between me and him. Where do I look for salvation? Um, I must look to the Lord. That's where the ray of hope finally shines in this passage. Um, in verse 7 of chapter 7. Where he realized salvation. Because when we look at what we need. To have the demands of God's justice satisfied. So that we can escape his punishment. And return to his favor. We begin to understand. There's only one kind of savior that will be sufficient. Only one kind of mediator that can stand between me and God. Only one kind of deliverer who can deliver me from the wrath of God that's rightly coming against my sin. It's the kind of deliverer who is a true man, who is human like us, who's made in our likeness, who shares our flesh and blood. But he can't be a sinner, so he has to be a righteous man. And no mere creature is going to be able to withstand the wrath and fury of God. So he has to be more powerful than all creatures. And who alone would be strong enough to stand up under the wrath and fury of God, but God himself. As you see, as we begin to say, what are we looking for? What are we waiting for? What is Micah praying for? We understand clearly what he's praying for is Jesus. Truly righteous, not stained with the sin of Adam, coming into the world as a righteous man, unlike the rest of humankind described in this book, and true God, powerful enough to stand up under the judgment of God, to help us escape his punishment and return to his favor. Because what's missing from really Micah and everyone else in this passage What's missing is what's good and what the Lord requires of them. Um, the Lord has said, I didn't, I didn't require you to double up on offerings and try to make up for it by more calves, more rams, more oil. What did I want? What is good? What did I want to find when I come? Those who do justice. Those who love mercy. And those who walk humbly with their God. What does God want to see in the world? He wants to see those who do justly. In other words, people who do what he's required. Do his law. Are zealous for what his law requires. And those who love mercy. Um, not just those who do mercy. But those who love it. Who find their delight in showing kindness and steadfast love. Um, that's what God wants to see, those who delight. And those who will walk with humility and care with their God. Just that word, that word walk humbly um, comes from the same word that can also be translated carefully or cautiously. Um, that we walk humbly, carefully with God. What is so much of our problem? We're always walking away from God. 
doing, walking away from the things that he wants us to do. And what has he always wanted? People who walk with me. Who walk carefully, have a care to see that they keep in step with me. That's what I'm looking for. And when Jesus comes into the world, the Lord says, Now here is one who does what I've wanted. Here is the person I've been looking for. Who does justly. And who loves mercy. And who walks with me. The Lord Jesus is the great promise. What God was really looking for. And he comes into the world to live the way we should have lived. That he might provide that righteousness to us. To all of us who are among the ungodly on the face of the earth. That he might impute to us his righteousness. And that he might take the debt that we owe. And meet God in the curse of our sin. Right, the, the, the frightening nature of that question in verse 6 is, with what will I meet the Lord when he comes? Because I know my sin and I know the condemnation. I know what it deserves. And what Jesus comes and does is takes that from us and then says, I will go meet God in the curse of your sin. That's what the cross was. Christ taking our sin on himself. And then going and meeting his father in our cursedness. So that he might receive on himself the penalty for our sins. And the the important reason we need to understand that is so that we understand what Christ has done for poor sinners like us. He's taken away what we owed to God by his death. And he's provided us that righteous life that we needed. He's both taken away our debt and returned us to God's favor by his righteousness. And through faith in Christ, that becomes ours. And the important reason we need to understand that for our comfort is so that you know when you meet the Lord, because we all will meet the Lord, On that day, we will not have to say, with what will I come before the Lord? I don't have anything to bring him. We will not have to say that if we put our faith in Christ. We can say, with what do I come before the Lord? I come before the Lord clothed in Jesus Christ and his righteousness. I am considered by God one who has been just. And one who loves mercy. And one who's walked carefully and humbly with my God. He will see me that way in Christ. And us and say, oh, here is one other name given among men by which we must be saved. Why? Because he's the only one who is true man, truly righteous and true God. He's the only one who could endure and deliver. He's the only mediator and helper. And he's enough. He's enough. We don't need then to keep on sacrifices and promises and duties and all these things. Jesus is enough. We've waited for him. That's who Micah was waiting for. That's who Micah was praying for. 
And that's who's come. Our Savior, our Lord, to rescue us so that we would escape judgment and return to the favor of God. Praise God that Christ has done it by his cross. Let's all put our faith and trust in him and live. Amen.